slash and cast. Welcome back, fiends, to Handle, a Whiskey presented by the Slash Incast Podcast Network. Our show discusses horror movies and the phobias they emphasize throughout February. We'll be taking a closer look at necrophobia and the extreme or rational fear of death or dead bodies in horror. And before I introduce tonight's film and my co-host, just a few general reminders for you guys. You can stay connected with us on X at Hand of Whiskey Pod. Be sure to join us for our Twisted Tuesday and Thursday watch parties, which are held uh, every Tuesday and Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. And that is over at kick.com forward slash tumbly drunk. As always, I am joined by my co-host Grindhouse Zombie. And Grind, you know, we, we were talking a little bit about this this last week, uh, but the movie we'll be discussing tonight, I feel like for a lot of people out there, uh, this movie was probably their their gateway or their entry point into the genre. Um, I would say really the only other movie that comes to mind that would probably rival it, just in regards to, like, overall... Uh, numbers would probably be Jaws. Like, I feel like it's either Jaws or Poltergeist. It's one of the two. And I would say for, for the most part, that makes up, like, the bulk of the first viewing experiences when it comes to scary movies. Well, this is one. So this came out in 82, and I was eight in 1982. And my family saw this at the drive-in. Um, so my bedroom window at our little house in suburban Minneapolis um, had a great big willow tree in the front yard that scratched on my window every day. And I never thought anything of it until after seeing this movie. So I can't call this my, my quote unquote intro, but I, I will say this. It is the first movie that left me just petrified, absolutely petrified, um, like scared to sleep. Um, so, I mean, I've gateway is a good way to put it. Um, my wife and I were having a discussion earlier and we were talking about this and she's like, well, and look what you do now. And I'm like, huh? Yeah, that's <laughs> kind of makes sense. You like to talk about horror movies. It makes sense. Um, but yeah, this was the first time I was scared to death, couldn't sleep and ended up in my parents' bed at eight years old. You would probably never be able to guess, uh, what movie like scared me as a kid, because it's not like a genre title. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is gonna this is slightly embarrassing um but you know we've we've always been a a dog family uh you know we've always had dogs growing up and uh you know when i was a kid the sandlot always scared me with the like gnarly like growls that like the dog next door would have like behind you know like the other side of the fence even though like you know later we would see like it it was just Far more innocent than what it was leading on, but like that shit used to give me nightmares uh, when I was younger. Oh, I believe it. I the uh, the dog Chopper from Stand by Me was one mm -hmm. that because we had a, we had a neighbor whose dog barked just like that, and 
you never, you very rarely saw the dog. And then it was one of those things years later, you see the dog and you're like, oh, well, okay. Um, but no, I get it. I mean, it's not, I, I, dude, there were some things in the movies Goonies that scared mm-hmm. me. So it's like, it's not, when you're a kid, uh, fear is fear. I mean, and that's, I mean, kind of the great thing about fear is that, like, when I think about this one, and I can recall being frightened of this one, I can recall it pretty vividly. Um, and the funny part is, you know, now at my age now, there's not too much that does that anymore. Mm-hmm. It truly makes me afraid. Um, I think the last time I was truly, truly afraid was uh, I went and saw Paranormal Activity in the theater and came home. And at the time I was single, so it was me, my dog, and then um, my oldest was I think he was old. He might have been out of the house, and my youngest was with her mom, so it was just me. And all the creaking and settling that your house does every single night, that happens every single night, you never notice it. Oh, God, it scares shit out of me. (laughs) (laughs) And I was a grown man, so, I mean, it's... But it's that's the hard part about fear when you love horror is that it takes a lot these days to get you afraid. But it's still fun. I still like it when it happens. Yeah, the only difference uh, in this case was, you know, you didn't have, like, just that, like, slow build of, like, the background noise, like, leaded into, like, the big spook moments, <laughs> like you do in Paranormal. Ah. Or any, like, uh. weird ghost dimensions or uh, anything like that. Uh, but anyways, for those that haven't seen Poltergeist, uh, one, go check it out immediately, because, uh, you know, it is it is by all means a classic and uh, one that really kind of, like, blurred the lines between, like, the, the R and PG uh, scaling of the time of the early 1980s. Uh, but with the synopsis, we have a family's home uh, being haunted by a host of demonic ghosts. And that that is, like, the, the most basic way you could actually, like, describe the, the overall story uh, to this. But Poltergeist, uh, really good success in the box office. Uh, it was made for just under $11 million. It would go on to earn uh, about like 122 million there in uh, the box office throughout its run uh, was nominated for three different Oscar awards uh, for best original score, best sound effects editing, as well as the best visual effects. Uh, but ultimately Poltergeist would go home empty handed losing all three to the other Steven Spielberg production from 1982. That of mm. course being E.T. Uh, so I, I will say, I think with the behind-the-scenes aspect of this movie, the one thing that is constantly brought up is about who the fuck actually directed the movie. There's a lot mm. of commotion when it comes to Toby Hooper directing and Steven Spielberg directed, and a lot of that stems from the fact that Steven Spielberg wanted to direct the movie, but was contractually forbidden since he was shooting E.T. for Universal at the time, and the studio didn't allow him to direct another film uh, in tandem. Now, you know, that being said, uh, you know, during the production... Uh, you know, there was also talks of, like, Toby Hooper going AWOL, and, you know, Steven Spielberg was having to step in, and, you know, Spielberg was just constantly on the set of the film, uh, where, you know, he would, like, set up shots, he would coach the actors, uh, he would, 
like even like direct like the the opening sequence of the movie uh and there's just been there's been a lot of discussion about that aspect of the film and it's i i think outside of like the quote curse of poltergeist uh that's those are probably like the two biggest stories that have actually like stemmed from uh this franchise in its entirety well yeah so the the creative part of it is an interesting story and if you if you deep dive it a little bit you get comments from all over the place Mm -hmm. um and i think uh the one actress one of the actress's comments i think that stood out most to me was zelda rubenstein's and she talked about that you know she was there for x number of days and and she says and she's quoted as saying steven directed all six days so it's like whether he was there or not people definitely remember things how they remember them. And there were some more comments, I think, on the, was it the 30th anniversary of this, where there were some more interviews and things like that, where people tried to clarify. And it, from what I read, it honestly sounds like it just kind of muddied the water even more. Um, so then the poltergeist curse. Okay. I think everyone pretty much knows, um, about, uh, Carol Ann's character. And I'm, Everyone forgive me, I've got the flu really bad, so my brain is just not where it is. But that actress died midway through the filming of part three of, I believe it was a bowel obstruction, is what she died of. And then the actress that played her older sister um, was basically murdered by her boyfriend. Um, and there's there's some other things that I've heard about. If you have additional ones, feel free to add them here. I know that's the two big ones that I know of. Um, but there were some other, uh, call them incidental things. I think that there was somebody who was on the, uh, stunt crew that died. Um, and there was at least one other person, um, that, and really the only connection was that they all worked on one of these films. I mean, and so, I mean, you can call that six degrees of separation if you want to, but, it also doesn't take too much to wrap it all together in a nice little bow and call it a curse. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. But uh, I, the only other one that like I can sort of recall was like the um, the mom actress from the first movie was like dealing with like a lot of like paranormal uh, like experiences during oh, the Joe Beth Williams during during the first movie. Um, I can't remember if there was anything else. It's like I know I know I was like glancing at it too, but I, I I know you and I had both known a little bit about it, so I didn't want to like deep dive into it too much um out, outside of that though like i know steven spielberg had also wanted to turn to stephen king to like co-write uh poltergeist and you know the two would kind of like meet over lunch to you know talk about the project but uh nothing really came from that uh and it just kind of like went nowhere uh so who knows like what like what other directions there there could have been uh taken at that point in time uh, but the the other thing that has always like stood out to me about like the behind the scenes aspect of this movie is just knowing the lanes that they went to for the in ground pool and shooting that that fucking scene because the crew w- ended up using real skeletons uh, when you know Joe Beth falls into the swimming pool uh, and you know the reason behind that was just money you know. Real skeletons were cheaper to uh, procure than plastic ones. And of course, like knowing this, they're like, well, we probably shouldn't mention anything to, you know, our extras ahead of time. 
It's just like the just the idea of that. It's just like man, like what? Like why? Why even tell her? Like at all at that point? Like I think that is a situation where you are just better off not knowing at all. Don't tell him after the fact. You know, I I hate like the situations where it's like. Oh, well, what's in it? Oh, well, if I tell you, then you're not going to want to eat it. And then, like, you try it. And then, like, you are you might enjoy it. And then they're like, oh, well, it's, like, made out of, like, beeswax. And you're like, wait, what the fuck? You know, it's like one of those things. <laughs> well, no, absolutely. I, but, I mean, if you if you think about it and you look at these movies and, you know, the special effects was industrial light magic. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at the effects today... Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely an argument for the fact that they maybe don't really hold up. Um, you know, at the same time, this movie was made 42 years ago. I mean, so you talk about, you know, leaps and bounds in, um, creativity and things that they can do as special effects. I mean, you know, this movie didn't have any CGI to speak of, you know, all the crazy light things that you saw, they did with lights. You know, I mean, when they wanted to have a special shot of, you know, uh, the one I think it was when the mom was like being like pulled down the hallway, they built a special dolly that pulled the camera down along with her. I mean, so to to know that, you know, this was 99.9% practical is absolutely beautiful. Now, there was a couple of there was one scene in particular, and it was when the one paranormal investigator goes into the bathroom and starts picking at his face. That's probably the one that I, because I, I watched it again tonight where I was just like, yeah, okay, that one's uh, clearly a fake head on a stick with real hands sticking up, and it's like, but at the same time, it's like, I don't think it matters. I, I that So much of the rest of it is so well done that it's... Overall, you know, under the umbrella of a movie, it certainly holds up. And, you know, the using of real skeletons, I mean, that's just, to me, that's just, I mean, taking it the next step and doing everything right. I mean, now what I have told everybody, eh, maybe not. Um, but um, that would have made it hard to come to work, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, overall, this movie... I think it honestly, it stands the test of time. It does so many things right and so many things well that for the little nitpicky things you could do, and you could nitpick a little bit of the acting, you could nitpick a little bit of the special effects, but this is going to sound strange, but it's an oddly wholesome movie when all is said and done. And it's really, really well made. And like I said, when I was a kid, it scared the shit out of me. So even better. Yeah, and uh, if you weren't afraid of, uh, you know, giant trees outside of your window, uh, one of the other, like, primary fears that this really drew upon, uh, you know, at least from, uh, you know, a lot of people's childhood, was the fear of clowns, because we do have Robbie with this, like, nightmarish clown uh, that, uh, you know, whenever it's nighttime, he uh, basically tries to, like, you know, throw a blanket or dirty clothes or whatever on top of it to cover its face, uh, and... That that thing is still creepy as shit to me. It doesn't matter how many times I see, I see this movie. How uh, about you know we we have that scene where uh, he basically gets like strangled by the clown and like you know the crew didn't realize like how tight of a grip like it actually had on him. He he thought 
like they thought like he was just kind of like ad libbing through the scene saying like he can't breathe but no in, in fact like it was definitely a tighter grip than what you know the crew actually were were believing to to be it's just like man like you you always hear about like freak accidents when it comes to like shooting movies and like at least it didn't go like any any further beyond that because then otherwise it just would have been like thrown into you know the the curse uh trope that has kind of like befallen this franchise as well oh absolutely yeah that damn clown jesus christ and it always makes me wonder like as a kid like like why wouldn't you say something like why wouldn't you like why wouldn't you put it in the closet why wouldn't mm-hmm. you do something else you know um but then it almost kind of makes me think like well maybe he'd been doing that and it's just found its way back out or maybe his mom was like oh what's this doing in the closet and put mm-hmm. it back out there and it just that that fear from your childhood somehow manages to stalk you no matter what you fucking do and it was uh yeah that one is that clown and it's I always thought, honestly, it's a clown, but it's leaning more towards, like, a jester with the bells and things on it. Oh, sound of those bells, man. Ugh, God. Just, it makes my skin honestly <laughs> crawl. It honestly does. It's, it's... But it's like you said, it is one of the, it's one of the mainstay creepy things. And it's, I mean, they even managed to, you know, unlike a very recent movie, make a pool scary. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, and just, if you think about... Everybody knows somebody that when they were a kid, they were getting a pool. You know, everybody knows somebody. And it's such an exciting thing and such a great way to bring a family together. And then it, this one just turns it into a, just a nightmare. <laughs> and it, it's like, well, I mean, but again, that's part of the, the overall theme of the whole movie is it is so wholesome. It's so wholesome. These people genuinely didn't do anything wrong. They didn't. You know, they didn't do anything malicious. They didn't go out of their way to screw with the forces or anything. You know, they didn't bring out the Ouija board or anything like that. This was just an encounter. And and the the first encounter happened to be with the five-year-old who, I mean, if there's somebody in the house that doesn't know any better, I don't know who it's going to be, maybe other than her dead Tweety Bird or her new goldfish. Um, So there's nothing. It's one of those rare movies where the whole time you're just honestly pulling for this family and you want them to get through this and you want them to get their kid back. And I always, uh, one of the things I've found interesting as an adult watching this is again, and they, they make a point of saying in the movie is they don't contact the police. Mm-hmm. They don't do that. And I, I would think in this day and age of when you have a missing kid, it's five years old. That's the first thing that you're going to do, but they don't do that. And they, he literally talks about going through the yellow pages and finding a paranormal investigator um, and it's such a, it's such an interesting approach, but at the same time, it's like, when you know that you're able to talk to your child through the TV, I mean, who's going to believe that, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, well, I mean, who's, who's honestly, who's going to, everyone's going to think you're nuts and they're going to haul you off. So it's like, well, I mean, it kind of makes sense. So again, I mean, I, when it comes to horror movies, cause I think this is a horror movie. There's people that say that it's not a horror movie. I say it's a horror movie. Um, and I would go so far as to say that it's damn near perfect. Absolutely, and uh, you know, one of the one of the things that I feel like I'm not gonna say, I guess I should say, kind of dates it because, like, obviously, like this movie is older than me. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Poltergeist opens with you know the the national anthem playing on television, uh, since you know that was basically the end of the night broadcast. Um. 
see, growing up, I I never knew that was an actual thing. You know, I just thought like, all right, it's I, like three o'clock in the morning. It's just infomercials and like nothing else until like the like the six o'clock news or Saturday morning cartoons or whatever. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to bring that up because, yeah, so this is going to be a shocker to a lot of people. There was a point in the day when TV ended <laughs> and when it ended, the last thing that they did at night is play the national anthem, which, so, for me, I mean, and this is going to sound really dumb, but, like, a lot of times hearing the national anthem, some, somewhere in my head it tells me it's time to go to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the funny part of that is that, so I was always a night owl growing up. My mom was always a night owl. So TV ending was actually our impetus for us getting our very first VCR. That was why we did it, because mm. it's like, well, there's no, okay, well, I want to, and it was, so we started out by doing the old rental thing where you went to the, and you actually rented the whole VCR and it came in two big suitcases and you brought it home and it was two <laughs> boxes and you got however many videotapes for, you know, at the time it was, oh, it was, it was expensive as hell at the time. But, um, but so that's why we did that. So, I mean, it's a, uh, yeah. And I don't think it, it's funny. And I, I was hoping you'd bring it up because if you didn't, I definitely was going to, but yeah, there was a point where at a certain hour of the day, and I don't know if it was just a societal standard or what it was, but TV went off and you were supposed to go to sleep. That was what you did next, just regardless of how late it was. Yep. Yeah. So no, the, no, the no. TV snow is great. Just the... <laughs> oh, yeah. I I remember that waking up in the morning a lot as a kid just to hear the static. You know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning and all you hear is static and, oh, I fell asleep on the couch again. Shit. Well, I mean, well, for a lot of people like that, uh, that actually helped them go to bed. Just hearing the static, you know, just having that sort of like background noise. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> as I was uh, going on to say, uh, you know, obviously, like we're, we're really brought into, you know, that all American family uh, aspect when it comes to suburbia. Uh, we have uh, Eba's like the golden retriever, who's uh, actually like named after one of the SNL characters that was played by Dan Aykroyd uh, at the time. Uh, and, you know, like, you got the dog, like, basically like, running through the house, basically, like, waking uh, up the family. Uh, and this is when Carol Ann, obviously, walks up, kind of, like, in a sleep-deprived state uh, towards a television screen uh, that, you know, as you mentioned, is a plane, you know, that snowy static after the station sign-off before the night. And then, you know, she's kind of just, like, responding to uh, the TV's questions uh, but, you know, it's really only something that she can actually hear. And, of course, you know, hearing this, it kind of, like, wakes up the entire uh, Freeland household. Uh, you know, both the parents, the older sister, and the older brother. And, uh, you know, this is when Carol Ann, you know, basically just places her hands on a television set, which is where, you know, we really get, like, that iconic uh, image that is displayed on basically, like, every single poster uh, for for this movie. Um, but it's but what's interesting is, you know, we we have uh, Quest of Verde, uh, which is like this new development where, uh, you know, all these houses are being built. But the one that the Freeman lives in is uh, there's something a little bit off about it, you know, a little bit different than all of the others. And uh, one of the things that I, I really laugh at, though, like every time I see this movie is just the argument between the neighbors when it comes to the television set because the ho- the houses are so close together and just the placements of the TVs are so close together that whenever someone is using the remote, 
it's impacting both households' TVs. And, you know, it just got me thinking, I'm like, how, how, how many times has that, like, actually happened? Or, like, what, what distance, like, does it need to be separated for you not to run into, like, that sort of conundrum? Because the guys are just wanting to watch the football game, uh, but, you know, the neighbor's daughter is, like, trying to watch her show or whatever, and it just keep, it's Mr. Rogers, and they just keep flipping between the two. It just seemed like the reaction of, like, all the boys just, you know, trying to chill and crack open beers and watch football only to uh, be be met by Mr. Rogers repeatedly. Well, see, I love the start of that scene when you've got the, the I'm guessing somebody who's another neighbor or a friend of uh, Mr. Freeling's, and he's hauling ass down the road on a BMX bike with a good old flashing flat of six packs under his arm, and the kids driving the RC cars, they basically kamikaze him, so he, he crashes and he, he runs into the house, and he's half the beer cans are spraying beer out of him as he's running in. And, like, if my neighbor showed up like that, I think I'd be pretty pissed if he was spraying beer all over my house. But, yeah, you're right. The biggest the biggest problem there was the fight with the neighbor over football versus Mr. Rogers. But if you look, I mean, I, I did a little bit of digging because I was curious about that, too. And I couldn't find a good number. But what I saw was anywhere between, like, 20 and 30 feet. Mm. Um, but if you look at those houses... That was probably well within that 20 to 30 feet yeah. because it was outside, a little bit of cement, a fence, a little bit of cement, another house. So they were, I mean, it was the the quintessential plat home, you know, built back then. The slab houses that were all built right next to each other. And you're right, though. It was uh, back then, at least, it was part of the American dream. That's what everybody wanted. Absolutely. Uh, so after this point is when uh, Diana's basically making all the kids' beds. Uh, this is when she discovers that uh, we have a dead canary in the household. Poor Tweety Bird uh, in the cage, all all deceased. Uh, and, uh, you know, we really have like this quite literal canary in the coal mine sort of moment uh, going on. Uh, because like that really does kind of like signal like, okay, stranger things are going to be happening. Uh, you know, in the freelance household. And, you know, sure enough, it just starts to uh, kick into high gear. But first, as with any death of a pet, you know, we, we kind of have to, like, go through uh, how do we dispose of this? And, you know, this is I've, I feel like everyone out there has had this sort of experience with their parents as a kid, whether it was a bird, a hamster, uh, a pet goldfish, beta fish, whatever. Of trying to dispose of, you know, a dead pet and flush it down the toilet. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like I think it's just like a rite of passage at this point, right? Like it has to be. Oh, I know, I think definitely everybody has. And the, the mom even makes a comment. She's like, damn Tweety, why couldn't you have waited for a school day? <laughs> you know, and it's like uh, so I mean that well and the fun part of that though is that they they do give you and it's almost sort of a I wouldn't call it a canary in the coal mine moment, but a little bit of a things to come moment when mm -hmm. they're when they they bury the uh, Tweety Bird with the pictures and the everything out in the little garden there, and then you know later when we have the the pool being dug up, they you know they toss over the Tweety Bird box and it's like, yeah, that's not the first box with a body you're gonna see popping out of the ground. Yeah, in not, this movie. <laughs> not to mention like the dog also tries to like. You know, dig it up, uh, dig it up yeah. as well, too, before that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, it, I mean, it's a great, again, it's a great little uh, family moment. You know, everything in that household has got a really good homeostasis. Everything is just, but sometimes things happen, and, you know, and 
as with most kids at five years old, her first question after they bury the bird is, can I get a goldfish now? <laughs> so yeah, they, they, I, move, I, they move on so fast, man. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I got to go with uh, something that has a little less maintenance and makes less of a mess uh, in comparison. But, you know, cleaning the fish tank still sucks ass. Uh, but that's that's a whole other uh, transgression. <laughs> uh, so so after this, uh, we have this huge storm uh, rolling into uh, Quest of Verde. Uh, and of course, you know, Robbie is severely frightened by the medicine old tree that is outside of his bedroom window. Uh, that and uh, yeah, there's also the clown doll that we had uh, previously mentioned, uh, which is, you know, something that he tries to cover up. Every single night before he goes to bed. And, you know, I I think when it comes to a lot of people's childhoods, too, like a, a very common shared thing that like scared a lot of people growing up was also, uh, you know, severe thunderstorms and, and lightning and thunder. And, you know, we, we do kind of have like that wholesome moment between, you know, the dad and the son about, uh, you know, trying to figure out, like, how, how far away, like, a storm actually is, like, from your household, you know, doing the count and trick and everything like that. Uh, another, like, super relatable thing for uh, a lot of people out there. Like, I know my dad and I used to do that, too, uh, growing up at the time. Um, and, you know, again, because they're scared of the storm, Carol Ann and Robbie elect to sleep with the parents, uh, you know, for safety and, of course, you know, because they're scared and, uh, you know, of course, the parents had been uh, been a little flirtatious, uh, among other things, in their in their bedroom prior to this. So, like, in the process, it also kind of just, like, you know, cucks the dad <laughs> in the process as well. Like, oh, damn, like, thought he was going to get it in. And, you know, here the kids are back in our bedroom, uh, kind of, like, separating us yet again at this point in time. <laughs> well, OK, so the tree, uh, we talked a little bit earlier but i have to go back to this tree mm -hmm. i have fucking tree man oh my god I, I it's completely illogical but to this day that when i watched this movie and we watched it a week or so ago and then i watched it again today god that tree just gets me every time and it shouldn't i'm a grown man okay <laughs> and a tree should not scare me and lo and behold here we are you know, and as far as like the big storm and everything, um, you know, that's when Robbie's out. And another one of those things that like pulls it right into my head for me because the big willow tree in my front yard, I used to climb that tree, mm -hmm. you know, get way up there. And that's exactly what this kid was doing. Now, the logic in my head says that this is their great new housing development. Why did they leave a half dead tree sitting there? Why did, <laughs> why did they just cut it down and be done with it? Um, but I suppose you don't necessarily have to have logic for everything. Well, it's also a lot of money to, like, dispose of a tree. <laughs> Let's be real. Tree removal is not cheap. Well, I would agree, but it, I also think that, you know, the guy, he works as a real estate mm -hmm. developer for that whole Cuesta Verde group. So that seems to me like something that they probably could have worked into the contract, yeah. you know? It's just an oversight. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Hey, by the way, cut this stupid tree down. Um... But yeah, during that whole thing, I mean, that tree coming through the window, I mean, that probably is the thing that kept me awake, mm -hmm. awake, awake. But, you know, after, after the weird, you know, after he comes home from work, 
and she shows him the phenomenon, you know, in the in the kitchen, and you know how all that's taking place. I mean, going again to being a grown man, and it's like, why didn't you guys just go? Well, time to leave. <laughs> let's just let's just go, um, because I mean, it starts out in most of the paranormal things that we're seeing. I mean, they're pretty innocuous, right? They're not. It's bent silverware and stacked furniture and, you know, um, just things that things that you could just kind of shrug off. But then it's like, for me, when you see the little girl slide across the floor, it's like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. that's that's kind of going to another level. Uh, but then with, I don't know, with the tree and the storm and then just everything... I mean, this movie does a really good job of getting things going, building momentum, and then just keeping you stressed out. Mm-hmm. It does a great job of that. Um, and, you know, and up to it, including, you know, the tree gets him, and then we don't really see it, but Carol Ann is pulled into her closet, which is, that whole scene is just fantastic. It's just absolutely fantastic. Um, and I felt so bad for Robbie because it's like, He's there, and then so he sort of gets saved from the tree. And then everyone's running around panicking, and then everyone runs in the house and kind of leaves him standing there. And then someone comes back and grabs him and brings him back in the house and sets him down and then leaves him standing there again. No one's really helping this kid. I mean, he's covered in shit, whatever else, and he's just sitting there and he's just obviously terrified. And everyone's, you know, looking frantically for Carol Ann and, you know, only to have Robbie, you know, finally grab his mother and set her down and point at the TV, you know, and then, then they can hear her from inside the TV. And that's when, I mean, I think this is a time when the giant console TVs were really a focal point of any household, mm-hmm. right? I mean, in this day and age, you can watch a movie in your shower or you can be, you can, you can do anything anywhere. But back then it was a, it was a place where all the family gathered and they did this thing together. Now, knowing what we know now, if we could go back in time, we'd probably tell people to not do that because it's going to turn us all into fat, lazy assholes. Um, but it was something of a of a very peaceful and calm family dynamic, and that's what people did. And to have that moment be ruined like this, or to be used against them so harshly, is really kind of a it's kind of a slap in the face to like American society in general. Just mm-hmm. kind of like a yeah, here's what you get for doing all that all that time. But it's such a good moment when they discover that. Yeah, so after, uh, you know, the the tendril snake attack of the, the tree limbs grabbing Robbie, um, what's interesting is, like, in that moment, we also kind of have just have, like, this explosion uh, of, like, I guess psionic energy would kind of, like, be the best way to describe it that, like, really, like, shakes the entire, like, household. Uh, and then this is when, you know, the parents wake up to find Carol Ann in front of the television set again. And then, of course, that's when we get, like, without a question, the most famous quote from this movie. Uh, when she's, you know, just saying, they're here. And, of course, you know, she's referring to the the TV people as uh, she kind of refers to them. And, uh, you know, we, we, we know they're, they're, they're not, not very nice. Uh, but anyway, so... 
you you already talked about it, like a lot of the special effects that we kind of like see with like the paranormal aspects of this. Um, you know, one of the other things that happens is kind of like the drinking glasses uh, shattering in in the kitchen as well. Uh, but the uh, like the mom discovering the 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 force that like kind of pulls you along like it's tickling uh, is really like the most like obvious thing that's like okay there's definitely something going on at this point that like we really can't explain and it's it's interesting too because like the way that she describes it makes it come across as like super playful so like nothing early on outside of the tree <laughs> like comes off as like malevolent uh, and, like, even, like, when, like, the daughter's gonna, like, drag it on the floor, it's like, okay, like, we're gonna put a helmet on you, you know, it's like when you're a kid, and, like, you're hopping in the laundry basket, and just sliding down the stairs. <laughs> exactly, there's, uh, it's a, uh, no harm, no foul situation, everyone, everyone here is friends. Well, it, it's interesting, because for the, the forces, we'll call the forces the TV people, um, whatever they are. I mean, when you think about <clears throat> malevolence, I guess, um, watching this movie now, even to, like as a kid, they scared the shit out of me. Watching them to watching them today, it's like they don't feel like all that bad natured. Mm -hmm. They're just they seem like they're attracted to life and they're sort of angry about, you know, because if you if you look at it strictly from like a paradoxical viewpoint. They're attracted to life, so they had all these headstones where people could come and, you know, pay their respects and things like that. And that was sort of their way to get life. And then once those were removed, they didn't have anything else, you know. So it doesn't, it, it really doesn't, it's not surprising that they would be like, oh, well, look at the, look at the life force living above us now. Well, let's, let's cling on to that. So I always struggle a little bit with how, were they evil or were they not? Now, granted, Poltergeist 2 pretty much clears that up real fast. Um, but um, in this one, it was like, well, are they necessarily bad or are they just missing being alive? You know, mm -hmm. and has the moving of their headstones and not their bodies somehow disturbed them? Because it seems reasonable, I guess, is the word I would use. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, after Robbie is essentially dragged from the bedroom by, you know, Siri Oaktree, uh, in the backyard, you know, there's just so much chaos going on in this scene. Uh, but, you know, after they rescue Robbie, you know, the parents, uh, you know, discover, you know, Carolyn is missing. And like the first place they check is the swimming pool. Uh, and I know for like just a lot of people who own swimming pools that have kids, obviously, like there there is a major concern over whether or not a kid is going to drown in the pool. And, you know, you, you always hear horror stories about it. Um, you know, it's it's another thing like, oh, like, well, you can't go in there if you're alone type of situation uh, in, in a lot of cases, too. Or maybe like a pet like wandered in like that's happened to a lot of people uh, as well. So very logical first place to look. But like, obviously, like right now, this swimming pool is just a hole in the backyard that's been dug by the construction workers. Uh, but, you know, at the time, like. Obviously, like, with the big storm, there's a bunch of, like, storm water uh, in there. But, of course, Carol Ann isn't there. Uh, that's when they go inside to check her room, check her closet. Nowhere to be found. Uh, but we do know that Diane is able to hear Carol Ann communicate through the television set, specifically through the static, uh, you know, after, you know, 
the the nightly sign up and uh you know this is really when we we start our search for for carolyn and like how to return her back to uh our plane i guess would be the best way uh to, to put it but it, but it's interesting to me though like obviously you would mention like okay well why didn't you just go to the police uh and you know the dad goes to the local college for help in this case uh, you know, he, obviously it's having a major impact on him because he hasn't gone to work. Uh, he hasn't called the cops. He hasn't spoken to the press about it. You know, only thing on his mind right now is trying to get his little girl back. And, you know, he believes that uh, Dr. Lesh, Ryan, and Marty can be the ones to help. And those are uh, the paranormal investigators uh, who are brought into the household. And it's it's interesting to me, too, because, like, this is definitely, you know, something that has really picked up steam, like, you know, throughout the course of, like, the haunted house, some genre, when it comes to, like, okay, like, where to go inside. It's, like, kind of, like, a get the low down. And they all tend to, like, kind of have that trope of, okay, like, these people are, like, they they have this role in this movie. But it's always, like, a situation where it's, like, oh, well, I've never seen it quite like this, or, oh, I haven't experienced this before. Like, I was kind of, like, just putting on this, like, this sort of facade to, like, to, to fill this role to, like, basically, uh, in some cases, just scam people out of money. Um, but I, it's it's just an interesting trend that's uh, kind of been a recurrent thing. Well, I think it's I think it's two parts, to be honest. I think, yeah, there definitely are people that are scamsters that want money for things. But then I think there's also... These days, there's definitely an entertainment side of it, too. Mm-hmm. I know my wife and I have definitely gone on a couple of, in quotes, haunted things, um, where there are people there that do the paranormal investigations. They take it seriously, um, but they also, I think, are very well, well aware of the fact that nothing's probably going to jump out of the bushes and, you know, scare you. Um, but one of the funniest, funniest parts of this movie is one of the paranormal guys is, is explaining to the dad um, that he once saw a small Hot Wheels car roll seven feet across a flat surface over the course of seven hours, and he got it with time-lapse photography. And the dad <laughs> is just kind of, he's like scratching his chin, and he's like, yep, mm, as he's unlocking the door, and then he just swings the door open, and they all walk in, and the bed is twirling through the air, a lamp <laughs> flies by, and the lampshade attaches, and the bulb comes on. And these people have clearly... A, never seen anything like it, but secondarily are like, they have this, they all have this look on their face like, oh boy, we might be in over our heads, mm-hmm. you know, and then they jump downstairs where they're all having a discussion and the, uh, the one lady is sitting there, um, I think her name's Martha and she's just shaking, her cup of tea is just shaking. So it's like, I mean, not only do they know that it's real, it's, it's big and it's obvious, you know, cause I mean, that's kind of one thing with a lot of paranormal things, um, is and especially in movies is they don't make them this big and this obvious it's always you know it's that bump in the night or it's a door slowly creaking open and in here you've just got it's almost like the tornado stayed and it's in the bedroom you know and it's just swirling shit around everywhere i mean so it's really it's really right in your face and i thought it was honestly kind of bold to do that because it very easily like it started out as a little comical because of what Steven was saying. It's so it was definitely a little comical. And then you open that door and you get the comedy of it, but it very could have very easily could have spilled over and stayed comedic and it didn't. Mm-hmm. It got scary super quick. 
Um, so it, I, it was really well done. Absolutely. Uh, so when Carolyn is uh, kind of like communicating through the TV set uh, with the paranormal investigators, uh, one of the things that's constantly brought up is the appearance of the light. And, uh, you know, she says, like, uh, she's afraid of the light. Dr. Lesh is basically telling her, you know, to stay away from it as, you know, it could be dangerous to a living person. Uh, and, you know, Caroline is also screaming about, like, the fact that there's somewhat, some, like, something else with her in there. Uh, something that uh, is far more medicine because, like, we do kind of, like, hear that sort of, like, growling uh, in the background. Uh, and... You know, we're we're kind of like at this point where it's just like the the stakes at this point are 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 raised because like you know the clock is really ticking and you know it feels like we only have a matter of time to res rescue Carolyn uh, before she is you know lost somewhere into like the 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 ether. <laughs> um, so obviously, like all the paranormal investigators are just talking about like this strange phenomenon that they've been seeing and how it's you know, unlike anything that they have experienced before. And, you know, Ryan comes up with this suggestion that, you know, there might be another portal uh, inside the house, you know, that they can find Carol Ann in. Uh, and this is one of the more, in like, interesting aspects of this movie to me is when we, we get Marty, who was just, like, wandering into the kitchen for, like, a midnight snack. <laughs> oh. You know, he's foraging for, for whatever he can find in in the refrigerator. And, you know, he pulls out pulls out a steak, <laughs> you know, sets it, on, sets it on the counter. And, like, the next thing you know, he just looks over, just absolutely horrified because he just sees the steak, like, starting to crawl on its own. And then it just explodes. Uh, and then, you know, he goes for, like, a drumstick of, of chicken, uh, only to find out that, like, there's maggots writhing in it uh, after he takes a bite out of it. Uh, so, you know, thinking like he's hallucinating, he's like, all right, like, I, I, I just need to snap back to reality. So he goes into the uh, the utility sink uh, mirror and, you know, runs the water, looks like, you know, splash off his face and, like, wake himself up because, like, obviously, like, this can't actually be happening. And then this is when we get, like, that really cool... Uh, ripping of the face moment, uh, and I know I know you had like talked about like it's you know it's very obvious like you know how the effects are done in this scene, and you know we do have Steven Spielberg like literally hands on uh, in regards to this because he's the one peeling away uh, at the flesh. But the the whole concept of just seeing like the steak crawl across the counter is just one of the like the one thing of this movie that is like always stood out the most to me just because it's like unlike anything i'd ever seen before well i think it's ultimately it's a common theme throughout the whole movie um you have it with the steak you have it with the the drumstick that he's chewing on you have it with him as a character you have it with Carol Ann's closet. You have it with the TV. The common theme being what's on the inside, mm -hmm. and they give it to you repeatedly. Now, when this when the steak are ups on the counter, that's just gross. I mean, it's just it's 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 genuinely gross. It kind of makes you just go ugh. Like my 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 wife came down earlier and she sat in and she like got done with her ballet class and she made herself a snack and came down here and that was the first thing she saw and she was like nope <laughs> and and right out she went. So, I mean, it, it's very, very effective. Um, but then it kind of goes to what you're saying about, well, hey, 
is there a portal somewhere else inside this house? And no one's really sure how to find it, so they uh, effectively call it an expert, let's just say. Mm-hmm. And I, if you've ever... I don't know how you could not know this actress, um, but she's fantastic. Her character is fantastic. Even when they're when she first comes into the house and she goes upstairs and Steven's sort of bad-mouthing her like, very quietly under her breath, and she's like, I am, I just don't like secrets. And he's like... Like, he didn't even finish his statement, and she mm-hmm. knew exactly what he was going to say, so he was like, huh, okay. <laughs> so this is where, I mean, and honestly, in this movie, the pace has been fast. Um, I mean, for this for this movie, if you think about it for 1982, this movie was almost two hours long, okay? So back then, they weren't making two-hour-long movies. They were too expensive, right? Um, we, had our, we had our sweet 85 to 90-minute spot. They cut movies up. T- to get them to fit. Um, and a lot of times, and I don't know if people know this, but the reason for those movies is so they could put them on TV and have X minutes of commercials in the TV, usually 22 to 28 minutes of commercials in a TV, in a, in a movie on TV. So that's why they made them that long. Um, so this was outside the box from the get go. And I think they just kept doing things outside the box, but this is, I think the spot in the movie where the, the pace just puts it into ludicrous and just you just take off like starship from there and it's fantastic it's also really at a point where after we get like the whole uh face ripping scene uh it, it's it's very apparent like the poltergeist at this point is just getting nastier more menacing uh fr- from this point on um so <clears throat> this is also like when the Freelands are discovering like there are you know watches and jewelry that don't belong to them, uh, and they've kind of been falling out of this portal uh, that is in their ceiling, uh, and it's 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 interesting. It's also kind of like a clue because like some of these things are old, uh, some of them are recent, uh, and you know it definitely tells us uh, as like. Kind of like hinting at what's going on, as well as like we you know we have these ghostly images of uh, these wanderers that they witness, kind of like floating down the staircase. And oh, that that beautiful staircase, yeah, that that staircase was such a highlight of this movie. They they highlighted it a number of times, mm-hmm. but then to like the ceiling you're talking about is just adjacent to that where the staircase comes down, where they're finding all those things. And it's funny, it wasn't till I've seen this movie a lot of times. It wasn't until we were watching it the other night that I like put those two things together. I don't know why I didn't before then, for whatever reason, that again, what's on the inside wants to come out. Where's it gonna come out? And it was it many times as I'd seen that scene, it was like, where is she getting these things from? I had never put it together. I don't know why. And then I finally did and it was like, oh, well that, that makes total sense. Um but it's cool, like the old glasses and the old watch and things. And it's like, to your point, it's like back to that theme of what's on the inside. So, you know, where else would you find a large group of people from many, many decades <laughs> with <laughs> a bunch of different items of many decades? Well, um, probably not the old folks home and probably not the nursery. So I'm guessing cemetery, right? Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, this is when we're uh, brought to Louis Teague, who is the head of the construction company that uh, Stephen works for. And, uh, you know, sure enough, you know, he was the one who built uh, Cuesta Verde, which is, uh, you know, 
we, we have this moment when they are walking up to the cemetery on the hill. Uh, and this but is when we kind of like. But they don't show it to you. Right. That's the cruel. That's the cruel part, because his boss is worried that he's going to leave for another opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's like, wouldn't this be a great place for a bay window? And he's like, well, yeah. And the camera eventually pans around and you see. And that's I mean, I I actually had my wife come back down to watch that part because. I think as a human being, most human beings, even if you're not religious, I think you 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 hold a cemetery in a, at a certain level of reverence. It's not a place that you'd fuck with, right? You just wouldn't. And to have that guy saying that, <laughs> and then they pan and it's like, there's a headstone. I think it said Becky, and she died in like 1943. It's like, and then he, you know, they talk about it, and he's like, well, we've done it before. Mm-hmm. And then it's like. Uh, I that scene is very jarring. I mm-hmm. think it's very jarring. Um, and it makes you think. It's like so where I live. Um, I don't live too far from the Mississippi River, and this used to be a great big farming community. Somewhere in like six blocks around me, there's an old cemetery. Um, and nobody can find it. Everybody has a different idea of where it is, and the evidence of its existence is scant unless you go talk to the city, and the city is like, well, yeah, it used to be right around here somewhere, and they did this, and they did that. Um, and this was not something I learned until way after I moved into this neighborhood. But then it makes you think. It's like, okay, so this is 1982. Was that like a standard practice? I mean, did they just do that? You know? Because um, people set up communities where resources were abundant and the place looked nice. And so eventually they had to bury their dead there. Well, then those communities got big. And at some point the dead are not, you know, quite as, as important as expansion and jobs and all these other things. And it's like, you start thinking about that and it's like, shit, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I well, dig my basement a little deeper, but I don't know what would pop out. So I'm not going to. <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, uh, this is when, uh, he mentions that uh, Quest of Faraday was once a cemetery, but the company had relocated it to build all of these homes. Uh, turns out that the Freeland's house was actually the first home that was built. And, uh, you know, they were also, because of that, the first family to move in. Uh, so, again, you know, we, we it's hinting at, like, the big reveal of the movie without, like, giving it like giving us like the whole picture of it because obviously there is more to it than that uh, which is later revealed towards the finale of the movie uh, but this is when uh we turn to tangina who uh you know is zelda who you mentioned who is our medium uh being brought in to help the freelance to get their daughter back and uh you know of course like you know steven was acting very skeptical at first thinking like uh you know this small woman is just you know sideshow act like she's just here to scam us uh, but, you know, she is very quick to just get to the heart of the matter. Uh, you know, she's the one who can, like, feel that sort of powerful evil force, uh, within the household. And, uh, you know, they also give the, uh, the poltergeist in this movie a name. Or at least a daughter does. Uh, but, you know, most people would call it the Beast. Uh, which is That's another... The- that's the dark force, yeah. Because I mean, what what she bet, what she fleshes out to the family is that there's a bunch of spirits that are lingering, mm-hmm. but there's one that's particularly dark, 
and she calls it the beast and supposedly the beast is restraining carol ann um and somehow doing something with her life force in or in order to keep the other spirits with him so he i'm guessing so he has a flock and again if you see poltergeist 2 that's very well spelled out in poltergeist 2 um but so that goes to the point what i was talking about where up until now it's like I didn't really feel like anything was particularly evil. I just felt that it was maybe mad. <laughs> um, and I think those are different things. And now this is when we start really getting to talk about evil. And again, the pace from here just skyrockets. Yeah, so at this point, it's all a matter of, okay, well, how are we going to be able to free uh, Carolan from the from the ether and from the beast's grasps? Uh, so the whole idea here is, you know, we're going to pull her out from this abyss by uh, basically using a rope tied around uh, Diane. Because, like, Diane is, like, really the only uh, person that uh, Caroline is actually going to listen to. And and I thought it's interesting, too, because, like, this is also kind of, like, the, the point where it's, like, you know, they're trying to communicate with the daughter, but, like, the daughter really isn't answered initially. So then, like... Uh, the medium is basically telling, like, the dad, like, you know, like, be strict with her. Like, you know, yell at her, basically, to, like, try to, like, draw her out. Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, mm. this was, you know, this was at a time when people put some energy into raising their children, right? And, um, but it was also a time when, and I don't want to, I don't want to get myself canceled by saying this, but... There was a lot more men in the workforce than women. So women raised the kids and the guys went to work. And But a lot of times, you know, the mom had to deal with the problems, but dad was frequently the consequences, right? So, I mean, it for the time, it makes sense um, that, you know, hearing your father's stern voice would snap you to attention pretty quickly and get you to get you to act. So to me, that made total sense. I mean, that was that was uh, uh not so much my house, but a lot of my friends growing up, that's where that's where their houses were. Is that if you heard the dad come home and hear their name, it was like, oh, time to go. <laughs> I don't need any part of this. Yep, it was either you heard the dad's name or you heard your friend's middle name. Oh, yeah, either <laughs> both of them were bad. Both were bad, yep. Yeah, if, you're, if one of your parents used your middle name, you were screwed. Yep. <laughs> yeah, n- n- never never want to hear that. Uh, so we, we do end up... Uh, with like our our sort of rescue and like we we kind of have like this false ending I guess would be one way to put it because you know we have uh you know uh Tamgina basically proclaiming like you know this house is clean uh but that could not be further from the truth <laughs> um but it's it's because of that you know you had the Freelands who uh feel like okay like we're we're through it we can put it behind us at this point and they're like okay let's get the hell out of Dodge, you know, like any sane person would do uh, or should have already done at this point in time, uh, you know, before all this happened. They have just had enough. Uh, And this is when Stephen basically goes to talk to his boss to give him his sort of like resignation. Uh, And, you know, Diane is basically staying back at the house with Carolyn and Robbie. Uh, And of course, you know, very... Very horror trope heavy with with this, but, uh, you know, very akin to, like, say, Michael Myers, you know, popping back up for one last scare. Of course, the poltergeist does this yet again, uh, looking to grab Carol Ann. So it turns out the beast is not quite done with her just yet. 
and uh, this is when we have our absolutely uh, fantastic pool scene, uh, which is the reason why I will never have an in-ground swimming pool, uh, with all of the you know real skeletons, unbeknownst to her, uh, shooting this scene. And, you know, we just had the moment where it's just like, you're you're really trying to fight the kids. Uh, Carol Ann is, you know, fighting for dear life by, uh, by, like, basically, like, holding on. And she's just, like, she's trying to get, like, sucked into the closet uh, yet again. Uh, we have Robbie getting strangled by the clown doll in this scene as well. Uh, and, of course, you know, the mom tries to help, but, you know, the beast locks her out of the room. And this is when she turns to uh, trying to grab the... Uh, the assistance from the neighbors. And I think for me, my, my only real gripe with this movie is the neighbor because we, we have these scenes, like we have a fucking tornado literally in the backyard of the Freeland's household. Right. And not a peep from the neighbor at all. You know, you don't hear there's a whole bunch of commotion going on. There's screaming happening. You know, you would have to be able to hear something. The house is literally like 15 feet away. Like, you would you would have to think something is going on. But, you know, sure enough, like, this is the only time when, uh, you know, the neighbor, like, actually looks like maybe he'll, like, turn a corner. Or maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there, and there you go. Yeah, I mean... So, I mean, you know, aside from, you know, I think this is, it's kind of one of the times you sort of get an actual, like a fairly good look at the beast, kind of, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, even for the time, is still kind of fairly rewarding. Um, yeah, with Diane falling into the partially excavated pool and the bodies popping up, oh, Jesus. I mean, and, you know, as the, as you call it, the her futile attempts to rescue the children kind of keep going. It kind of becomes a running theme. Every time she gets to a door, a coffin pops up out of the ground. I mean, and there's just this movie for what it is at the end of it, there's just bodies everywhere. I mean, they're just everywhere. Um, and you know, between Robbie kind of like having had it with the, with the clown and just shredding it because he just shreds that damn thing. And that's, that's really fun to watch. It's, it's nice that even though the kid gets a little bit of comeuppance in the whole thing. Um, but then, you know, even as, um, Steven, you know, comes home, you know, and she's finally coming out with the kids. She's finally collected them from the room. And, you know, they were both being collectively pulled towards that portal, which is just a wild scene, just watching them and, you know, Robbie hanging on and she, she's able to pull them out of the room they get outside and Steven, you know, comes home accompanied by his boss. And, you know, and that's kind of when he realizes that only the gravestones were relocated, you know, that it was just built over the abandoned graves. And if you look back to that scene where they're looking over the hillside and you see all these prospective homes going to be built, they're all slab homes, right? There's no basements or anything, you know? So it's like, yeah, they just went straight over the top, covered them up with cement and <laughs> called it good. Um, conveniently, it's also when Dana is returning home, and this is the point where the feelings are just like, you know what, enough of this shit, and they get in the car, and they beat feet. Um, and you can say, yeah, it's about time. I mean, like, I, I don't think I would have stayed there one more night after the after my dr- daughter dropped out of a portal in the ceiling covered in ectoplasm. Um, but they flee, watching their house implode. Their ho- whole house ends up getting sucked into this big portal. Um, 
which is a pretty good scene. A, a little, a little reminiscent of uh, Carrie to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it works, it works, right? And the 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 ending of this movie, the way it it, it ends, it could not have ended any other way. You know, the, the family checking into the local Holiday Inn, and they sort of slam the door because they're all exhausted. They just want to go to bed. And then the door gets open again and the TV comes out a rolling cart and just hits the railing and they slams the door again. I mean, that was a perfect ending. That was mm-hmm. a flawless ending for that movie. There's no other way you could have done that. And it just comes to show that, uh, you know, regardless of what sort of business uh, you may be involved in, uh, they will always find a way to try to save time and save money. You know, in this case, uh, it was the company just uh, moving the headstones but leaving all of the bodies so they could uh, build all the houses. Well, and I can't imagine in this day and age that somebody would not go to prison for that. Um, but hey, <laughs> you know, it was the 80s. Things were booming. Details, details, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. No, I mean, it, so, I mean, you, you, you look at this whole movie, and I'll say it again. I This movie is for being a horror movie that does have some blood in it, does have some scary moments in it. Um, it's really wholesome. I mean, and I think it's probably why it's a lot of people's jump off into horror, depending, almost depending on no matter what age you are, if you're not into horror and you see this, this might get you into it. Um, It's going to be a rough ride if it does, so (laughs) prepare. But it's just such a damn good movie. It's just, uh, it's, like I said, almost flawless. It's almost flawless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for, for a lot of people too, like one of the things that uh, really helps it stand out is just the fact that, for for a lot of them it really like tugs on like childhood fears uh for them as well whether it's you know the clown doll whether it's just bad thunderstorms uh maybe not maybe not ones where you know there's just a random tornado like literally right outside your house uh but you know that that can be its own sort of trauma in itself uh in that case uh but yeah just a, a damn good movie one that holds up really well but i i can't help but laugh at times when I, I see, like, the sort of, like, ethereal look of the beast. Because anytime, like, I kind of, like, see that, like, wandering-type, like, smoky effect, it just makes me think of, like, cartoons and, like, the the smell of, like, freshly made pies. <laughs> you know? Just, like, wandering through the air. <laughs> it just, it makes me think of that every time, and I just laugh so hard. Well, and you never know. Maybe that was on purpose. Maybe <laughs> they were trying, trying to make you afraid of Tom and Jerry, too. You know, you never know. Um... Yeah, I mean, and, and again, like, like we say, for the some of the effects and things that they were, I mean, I think for the time, they did a really masterful job. I love the fact that they just used a lot of real lights to just make things happen, and they got they got creative and tried things and to see what, you know, what would produce the intended effect. Um, the, one, the one scene where they, they filmed the thing coming down the steps, and when they replay it, you can see the individual people. And then they all basically look like Quakers, you know, just walking down these steps. And and that and see, that's where I'm still at the part where I'm not sure that most of those people were necessarily evil. Mm-hmm. I think that they were just not happy with the situation. So, you know, and the Beast, I think, if you, like I said, you go into part two, I think they finally put a name to the Beast. And I'll, I'll just let people see it so they um, can enjoy it. Um but it kind of makes sense. It's like he's the he was the shepherd. That was his flock. And, you know, his flock wanted to leave. And, you know, 
either cross over or be able to experience life force again. And that's what he used the little girl for, to give them a little taste of life. And it's it's not one of those things where you're like, well, it doesn't make any sense because it sort of does. I mean, it, you know, I, my guess is that being dead sucks, you know? So um, who wouldn't want to feel a little bit of life? And that's, for my for my chair, that's why I picked it for this because I think that it, it talks directly about that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, Here's alive people. Here's dead people. The dead people are saying it's better to be alive. Mm-hmm. So there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so looking ahead, uh, you know, since we have added on our Twisted Thursday watch parties to uh, check out some new genre releases, uh, we have No Way Up uh, streaming this Thursday, which is a new shark movie uh, that just hit VOD this past uh, Friday. You know, I was really hoping to watch it last Thursday, but, uh, you know, because you never know if something's coming out on a Tuesday or a Friday. This one was a Friday drop, so uh, we had to, like, basically push it back six days. But, you know, I I, I've, I already know, like, I, I have a very low bar when it comes to shark movies <laughs> that it needs to clear. Will it pass it? I sure as hell hope so. Uh, but either way, just, like, get into, like, have, like, a multitude of, like, First time viewing experiences always just really adds uh, to the watch party. So I hope you guys join us tomorrow for for No Way Up. We'll see what sort of like shark shenanery is going to be underway. Hopefully we get some good kills from that. Hopefully not a bunch of like green screen, terrible CGI or anything like that. Or uh, I'm not even going to mention the other one because uh, it was just so bad. We didn't even do the episode on it at the time when we were, when we were doing the Shark Week. Uh, but yeah, that, that should be good. And then we also, uh, for, for next week on, on Tuesday, we're, uh, well, we, we already watched Happy Death Day, but we'll be reviewing it, uh, for our next episode, uh, which is another fun movie that, uh, kind of, kind of like starts off as one thing, but then like, obviously like the idea is kind of like at the, at the center of it, like really like diverge into other genres of films as well uh which is going to be an interesting thing to uh to look forward to especially if they do ever end up making the third movie uh for this one yeah i went back to the i, I was trying to figure out why i never watched that and i went back and looked at the trailer and the trailer was why i didn't watch it mm, okay. um and so and i i was pretty openly bashing the movie when it got started yesterday um it was yesterday it was yesterday. Yeah, right? it was yesterday. I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> fucking it's, it's, it's Wednesday today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, no, but then as it got going, you're right. It 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 did a little genre twisting, and then it got it got to that point where if you're gonna be this kind of movie, you have to get a little bit dumb. Mm-hmm. And when you get a little bit dumb, that's when it gets fun, and it totally mm-hmm. did that. So yeah, it it redeemed itself in spades. And actually, the second one did a pretty good job of that too. I was kind of surprised. So. Um, yeah, no, those will be fun to talk about. And I think our very last one for February, if I'm not mistaken, is going to be Night of the Living Dead. And yep. I think we can all we can all guess who picked that. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you I <laughs> for me, one of the very first movies I ever saw as a kid, and it has it's what turned me into Grindhouse Zombie, man. So mm-hmm. roll up your sleeves and we'll dig in, get our shovels and our pickaxes and see if we can't bring some entertainment to some people. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So with that being said, that will wrap things up for tonight. So thank you so much for 
uh, listening to Hand with Scare. Uh, we will be back streaming tomorrow on Kick with No Way Up for some uh, shark mayhem, hopefully a ton of blood. Only time is going to tell, but uh, hey, as long as it's better than uh, some of the really bad shark movies, I'm sure we'll be in for a good time. But uh, either way, looking forward to it. We'll see where it stacks up against the competition. And uh, we get happy death day coming up for our next episode. So stay tuned for that. Uh, so hope you guys have a good night and we will see you next week. I think we should just start calling that one movie Voldemort. It should not be named. <laughs> that is that's a very fair point. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, we'll we'll end up doing that for sure. Yeah, uh, sounds good. All right. Take it easy, everyone. <laughs>